Part Four of the Story of Peter Lou by Francis Archibald Bruton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The unrest that followed the Napoleonic Wars. Frequent use of the military by the civil authorities. The employment of mounted troops and infantry in quelling civil disturbances, protecting property, and dispersing crowds was a common practice for years before the catastrophe in St. Peter's Fields. And of course, troops were used subsequently, especially during the Chartist disturbances just twenty years later, when Sir Charles Napier was placed in command of nearly six thousand men in the north, and stationed two thousand of them at Manchester, which he regarded as a danger centre. We must, however, carefully distinguish between cases where there was an open riot and instances where there was not even a threat of disorder. At the famous Shude Hill fight in 1757, the soldiers were only ordered to fire when one of their number had been killed and nine wounded by the rioters. The result of the volley was that four people were killed and fifteen wounded. In 1812, Shude Hill was again the scene of disorder when the cavalry were called in and the riot act was read. In the same year, the Great Depression led to disorder at Stockport when a troop of Cheshire Yeomanry cleared an area of a hundred acres in less than ten minutes. This year also saw very serious machine riots at Middleton, where the Scots Greys and Cumberland Militia were used with fatal results. At the conclusion of the Napoleonic War, the Corn Bill led to fresh disturbances which continued more or less up to the date of Peterloo, the chief causes being unemployment, the scarcity of food and the terrible social and economic conditions under which the operatives and their families lived. We may form some faint conception of these conditions by reading such a report as that issued by Dr. Kay, afterwards Sir James K. Shuttleworth, years after the date of Peterloo. The details he gives as to the sanitary conditions in Manchester are such that we could hardly quote them here. Between 1750 and 1820, it must be remembered, the population of Manchester increased sevenfold, yet the town was still under the old manorial system with no local government whatever and the great mass of its inhabitants, it is this that makes the situation so cruel, were, in a public sense, inarticulate, for Manchester had no parliamentary representative. The overworked population, writes Dr. Kay, had scarcely any means of education, except Sunday schools, dame schools, and adventure schools. They were ignorant, harassed with toil, inflamed with drink, and often goaded with want, owing to sudden depressions of trade. In a memorial sent up to Lord Sidmouth, the Home Secretary, only a few weeks before the catastrophe of Peterloo, the magistrates sitting at the New Bailey Courthouse in Salford make pointed reference to, quote, the deep distresses of the manufacturing classes of this extensive population, and go so far as to say, when the people are oppressed with hunger, we do not wonder at their giving ear to any doctrines which they are told will redress their grievances. In the years 1815 and 1816, the masses were already feeling their way towards a solution of their difficulties. The writings of Cobbett were eagerly read. Hampton clubs were formed in the distressed districts. An universal suffrage, annual parliaments and a reform of the currency were held up as the sovereign cure for the ills of the workers. Hence the agitators earned for themselves the name of reformers. In addition to Cobbett, the workers looked up to five or six public men as their leaders and champions, and one of these became the hero of the Peterloo Massacre. They were Sir Francis Burdett, Lord Cochrane, Major Cartwright, Sir Charles Wolseley, Mr. Henry Hunt, 
and, at one part of his career, Lord Broom. In attempting to understand the situation, it is advisable to keep two facts in mind. First, that there was, without doubt, secret plotting in a few isolated cases among the operatives, of a decidedly dangerous character. This is freely admitted by their own representative, who tells, for example, of the scheme to make a Moscow of Manchester. Secondly, that the discovery of this fact led to an estrangement between employers and employed, which postponed and delayed any approach to a friendly settlement. The whole situation is well expressed by the anonymous author of an impartial narrative, when he says, quote, The two general classes of reformers and anti-reformers watched each other with a jealous eye. To anyone who makes an earnest attempt to obtain an impartial view, this attitude of mutual suspicion, which seemed to heighten the barrier between the two classes as time went on, is one of the most painful features of the whole story. Two years before Peterloo, when the habeas corpus act had already been suspended, and a number of the agitators were consequently in hiding, a meeting was held in St. Peter's Fields, which, in all respects except the massacre, was almost the counterpart of the Peterloo meeting. On the 10th of March, a great crowd assembled to give a send-off to the Blanketeers. The magistrates were alarmed at the prospect, though nothing was proposed but a march of a body of petitioners to London, and on the 8th of March the Lord Lieutenant authorised Sir John Lester to call out the Cheshire Yeomanry in aid of the civil power. The order was obeyed with alacrity. On the following day, five troops of that regiment assembled and marched for Manchester, where they joined the King's Dragoon Guards and detachments of the 54th and 85th Infantry, the whole force being under the command of Sir John Bing. Early on the morning of the 10th, crowds of people began to stream into the town by various roads, many carrying knapsacks and blankets. The instigators of the meeting spoke from improvised hustings in St. Peter's Fields. The magistrates met in the very same room which they afterwards occupied on the occasion of Peterloo, and having warned the leaders with no result, they called upon the military, as they afterwards did at Peterloo, to disperse the meeting by a, quote, judicious movement of the King's Dragoon Guards. The cart was instantly surrounded, and the constables took the whole of the speakers into custody. No opposition was offered to the cavalry, and the multitude immediately dispersed, the troops giving them free passage. The march of the Blanketeers was then harassed by the mounted troops mentioned above, all the way to Macclesfield, where a number of arrests were made, and this effort of the reformers eventually fizzled out. The circumstances of the meeting should be compared with those of Peterloo, because, as Mr. J. E. Taylor afterwards pointed out, here is to be found the precedent for that novel form of reading the Riot Act, if in either case it were read at all, which was followed on the 16th of August, 1819. Immediately after the blanket meeting, the government set on foot a system of espionage which greatly embittered those agitating for reform, and was severely criticised in Parliament. Meanwhile, the privileged classes in Manchester and other towns had already met, at the suggestion of the Home Secretary, to consider, quote, the necessity of adopting additional measures for the maintenance of the public peace. Thus, repressive measures only drove the discontent under to smoulder, and suspicion helped to widen the breach. The principal perpetrators of this policy, afterwards so pointedly anathematised by Shelley, were Lord Sidmouth, the Home Secretary, Eldon, the Lord Chancellor, and Viscount Castlereagh, the Secretary for Foreign Affairs. 
less than a year before peterloo in september eighteen eighteen the dragoons were once more called out to disperse a crowd of turned-out spinners who were attacking a mill in ancoats evidently this was the scene which mrs gaskell had in her mind when picturing the attack on mr thornton's mill in north and south it must not be forgotten that there was at the time under consideration no regular police force available nadine the deputy constable who figures in the various arrests was merely the paid official of the antiquated court leet the so-called commission of police which was under the control of an absurdly unrepresentative committee will not bear comparison with the watch committees of to-day the practice of swearing in special constables was frequently resorted to but special constables had none of the skill and training in the matter of handling crowds possessed by modern police the constables sometimes declined to act without military aid and the magistrates leaned heavily on the support afforded by the troops in their difficulties and frequently acknowledged their indebtedness to them it is indeed evident from the history of the cheshire yeomanry that when the question of disbanding that regiment was seriously discussed as it was in the early part of the nineteenth century it was overruled by the consideration that the troops were indispensable in dealing with civil disturbances and the chairman of the sessions immediately following the meeting of blanketeers in march eighteen seventeen took occasion to say that the districts most liable to disturbance derived effective military aid from a corps formed in the neighbouring and for the most part tranquil county and again that the bench would be most happy to further any proposition for forming such a corps in the manufacturing districts it must not be forgotten that the neighbouring and for the most part tranquil county was an agricultural district and that the farmers and country squires who rode in its yeomanry had a special interest in preserving intact the corn law which the reformers were out to repeal the manchester and salford yeomanry the resolution just quoted is of great importance for a proper understanding of the occurrences at peterloo a careful examination of the evidence makes it clear that the catastrophe was as far as can be seen now largely due to the employment at the outset of a body of volunteer cavalry known as the manchester and salford yeomanry it is not easy to trace the history of these troops no contemporary records seem to exist we can however fix the date of their formation within a few months in his famous tract entitled an exposure of the calumnies etc mr francis phillips in quoting a letter of thanks from lord sidmouth to the commander of the cheshire yeomanry dated the twelfth of march eighteen seventeen says appendix page five the manchester yeomanry had not then been embodied yet aston in his metrical records of manchester states that the corps was formed in eighteen seventeen and gives some details of its inception we are therefore justified in supposing that it was embodied as a result of the resolution quoted above in other words that apparently in emulation of the cheshire yeomanry the corps was instituted mainly for the purpose of assisting the civil authorities in maintaining order with reference to the number employed at peterloo mr phillips speaks page fifty eight of the one hundred and sixteen manchester and salford yeomen who were on duty on the sixteenth of august the actual names addresses and occupations of these men are given in the manchester observer for the twentieth of april eighteen twenty two and this again is important evidence they are nearly all from manchester a few coming from pendleton and stretford mostly tradesmen innkeepers and small manufacturers for example cheesemongers ironmongers tailors watchmakers 
calico printers, butchers, corn merchants, butter factors, and so on. It would be unreasonable to suppose that such a levy would contain many skilled horsemen, and this, as we shall see, was fully borne out at Peterloo. Lieutenant Joliffe says of them, without the knowledge possessed by, a strictly speaking, military body, they were placed, most unwisely as it appeared, under the immediate command of the civil authorities, and this greatly aggravated the disasters of the day. It may easily be supposed that the use of these local levies of mounted troops for purposes of this kind aroused bitter resentment in the minds of the labouring population, which only grew as time went on. Thus we need not be surprised to find these words in the Manchester Observer just a month before the tragedy of Peterloo. The stupid boobies of yeomanry cavalry in the neighbourhood have only just made the discovery that the mind and muscle of the country are at length united, and during the past week have been foaming and broiling themselves to death in getting their swords ground and their pistols examined. The yeomanry are, generally speaking, the fawning dependents of the great, with a few fools and a greater proportion of coxcombs, who imagine they acquire considerable importance by wearing regimentals. The sharpening of the swords, by the way, was fully acknowledged by the other side. Thus, Mr. Phillips writes, page 17, The simple history of all the tales we have heard of sharpening sabres is briefly this. On the 7th of July, the government issued orders to the Cheshire and Manchester Yeomanry Cavalry, through the Lord's Lieutenant, to hold themselves in readiness, and consequently most of the Manchester Cavalry sent their arms to the same cutler which the corps during the last war had employed to put them in condition. All these details are important as aggravating the bitter feelings which already existed, and we shall see later that when this improvised corps advanced into the crowd, using their sharpened swords, they were in some cases individually recognised by those at whom they struck. As we approach the date of Peterloo, the confidence reposed in the volunteer cavalry by the authorities becomes even more apparent and about a month before the event, the commander of the Cheshire Yeomanry received orders to hold his regiment in readiness at a moment's notice to aid the civil power. Meanwhile, the magistrates complained to the Home Secretary that as the law stood, they were, quote, unable to interfere with the meetings of the reformers, notwithstanding their decided conviction of their mischief and danger, and that, upon this most important point, they were unarmed. These are the very words which Mr. L. C. Hobhouse took as his text in the able letter to Lord Castlereagh mentioned above. The Drillings We come, lastly, to another phase of the agitation, which was strongly developed not long before Peterloo, and, being undoubtedly misunderstood, gave the authorities some anxiety. The reformers began to hold meetings on the moors and elsewhere, for drill in squads. Bamford has left a very graphic account of these drilling parties, as he calls them. He emphasises the fact that there were no armed meetings, no concealed meetings, or anything of the sort. His explanation of the object of the drills, and there seems to be no reason why the explanation should not be accepted, is as follows. It was deemed expedient that the meeting on the 16th of August should be as morally effective as possible, and that it should exhibit a spectacle such as had never before been witnessed in England. We had frequently been taunted in the public press with our ragged, dirty appearance at these assemblages, with the confusion of our proceedings, and the mob-like crowds in which our numbers were mustered, and we determined that for once, at least, these reflections should not be deserved that we would disarm the bitterness of our political opponents by a display of cleanliness, sobriety, and decorum, 
such as we had never before exhibited we obtained by these drilling parties all we sought or thought of an expertness and order while moving in bodies it is certainly true that this was the effect of the drilling the order with which the various contingents approached the rendezvous on the fateful day was commended alike by friend and foe in fact one of the magistrates afterwards stated on oath that it was not until he saw quote, the party come on the field in beautiful order that he became alarmed it is easy for those of us who know the beautiful green uplands to which bamford refers to believe his statement that to the sedentary weavers and spinners these drillings on the open moors were periods of healthful exercise and enjoyment his description of them is one of the most charming passages in all his writings and surely it is a happy coincidence that the centenary of peterloo should see the tandle hills the very hills he describes thrown open to the public for ever the authorities saw fit to take quite another view of the drills on the very day before the event of peterloo a large meeting for such exercises was held on white moss near middleton very early in the morning and a few men who were there for purposes of espionage and who afterwards reported to the magistrates were very roughly handed by the operatives bamford does not hesitate to say that the rough treatment accorded to these spies quote, probably eradicated from the minds of the magistrates and our opponents whatever sentiments of indulgence they may hitherto have retained towards us this was on the day preceding peterloo on the day following the event the magistrates met and denounced the meetings for drill as quote, contrary to law End of part four.